0: This is the Capital City Podcast. I always love this sort of intangible hush that comes over a crowd. It's like the sense comes that, like, okay, it's time now. Question for you guys How does God accomplish His will? Think about that. But these are the great things of preaching in the city. You get to hear all, like, the. Uh, how does God accomplish his will? So today we're in Ruth 3. Actually, and, and the bulletin is incorrect, and this is my fault. I was preparing, um, does this say Luke 3 and 4? I was preparing, It's <laughs> doubly in- incorrect here. I was preparing Ruth uh, 3 and 4, and just, there was so much great material that I said, you know what, we're not going to put 3 and 4 together. So we're just doing Ruth 3 today, and then we'll finish the series uh, seven days from now, uh, Ruth 4 then. Um, So, because of the Minnesota summer, which is a a real force to reckon with, um, I wanted to remind you that there's the podcast, in in case you want to catch up on the series, so that you can kind of follow along with the story. Normally, we wouldn't plug that from up front, but because Ruth is a four-part story, I want you guys to be able to follow along. But I'll give it just a quick two-minute summary of where we are, so that we know that we're all kind of situated together in Ruth 3. So the story starts during a time of famine. There's our our classic Jewish family. They're living in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And a terrible famine comes, so they flee from Moab. This is a really disgraced land, but they happen to have good crops. So they flee to Moab. They're low on their luck, but they think, well, at least maybe we can start over in Moab. So the sons marry Moabite women there, but then, uh, turn for the worse, the father and both sons die. So now you have three widows. You have an older widow, Naomi and two younger ones, Orpah and Ruth. And to be a widow in the ancient world is a very unfortunate thing because there's almost no social net, no standing. If you are a woman without a male protector or guardian or sort of economic earnings holder, you're in big trouble. So uh, Orpah decides to stay behind and go back to her Moabite family, but then there's also Ruth. Naomi, the older one, decides to go back to Bethlehem but she has almost nothing to her name, unless she can find a redeemer. There's all these lands tied up in her name, but as a woman, she didn't have access to them because only men were property holders. So uh, she has nothing to her name. She's a widow. She knows this is a bad spot to be in in society. But Ruth, instead of going back to her Moabite family and taking you know, another roll of the dice, trying for a different husband, commits herself and her loyalty to Naomi. She's come to believe in Yahweh and not her local god, and she says that she will follow Naomi back. And what is in, in one of the most uh, touching passages of Scripture, she, she tells Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you are buried, I'll be buried. It's a huge and, and bold move of faith. Naomi knows better. She tries to get Ruth to stay behind, to start a new life, you know, go back to your mother's house, try for a different husband. Uh, but Ruth's like, no, I'm with you, come what may so when they go to Bethlehem, it's bad news. They're widows, they're at the bottom of society, and they really have nothing. Naomi arrives at the gate, and people remember her because it had only been 10 years. And so they, they say, like, Are you, you're Naomi, right? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for God has dealt bitterly with me. So that's Ruth 1. And we, we move on. What we heard Joshua preach last week is that Ruth then has to, in a sense, live the life of a poor person, of a beggar. So she goes out and she seeks to glean in the fields and moving over all the cool historical information, gleaning is basically just a, a historical mercy ministry that some farmers would leave the corners, basically the not-so-savory parts of the crop that get a lot of wear or a lot of you know, animals walking by it. They would leave those unharvested so that the poor could come and pick the food and, uh, and not starve. So Ruth starts gleaning, and while gleaning, she happens upon a field owned by a man named Boaz who's showing her special kindness. And he ends up just getting warmer and warmer to her. He says, uh, stay in my field, stay by my employees. He goes on to say, basically, you know, don't even bother with gleaning, just take grain right off the stock, like just start taking food right off the plants. Uh, It would kind of be like today if you saw a beggar outside of a business and the business owner is like, just come in and start taking stuff right off the shelf. And you know what? Come to the employee banquet, even though you're not working for me. Just incredible generosity that he's showing to her. And so this is what brings us to today's chapter. There's your three-minute summary of Ruth 1 and 2. If you want to hear the longer versions, you can find those on the podcast. Which, by the way, Nat here has been doing an incredible job with the podcast. He put in these little intros and outros and little musical things and, like, the sort of radio voice. It's, it's, you should check it out. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun. All right. That brings us to today's chapter. So after all of this special treatment, Naomi is on to something that Ruth isn't. I don't know if you guys ever remember in especially like middle school or high school, how like two people might clearly have feelings for each other, but they don't seem to, to know if the other person does. But everybody around them can tell, right? There's a certain blindness to people who are starting to fall for each other, but everybody in the community is like, well, that's really obvious. So Naomi is older and wiser and can see that this graciousness that Boaz has for Ruth isn't purely just out of a love for the poor. It's not just graciousness for Uh, the less fortunate. Uh, He was nice to all of his poor, to all of his gleaners, but she saw a special kind of favor here. He was probably interested, and uh, Naomi, again, not blinded by youth or hope, was like, we should do something about this. So, what happens next? Now, this is really interesting. There are about a thousand cultural miles of distance between the rest of the story and our American world of of courtship. Um, There's a lot of weird stories in the Old Testament, but we don't read them often, nor do we preach on them often. But I challenge you to find a church plant anywhere that hasn't preached on Ruth in their first two or three years. It's just a really famous story, and it's also just kind of wild. And So there's a ton of cultural background stuff that we have to decode as we go. So we'll read the story, and we'll decode it as we go. You can either just uh, listen, or you can uh, follow along a bit. Naomi says to open the chapter... She says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So right away, it's like, well, what does rest mean? Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well? And this is basically code. Any ancient hearer would hear this. Should I not seek a husband for you so that you can have rest, so that you can start a life again? And it's not, um, it's not that these women were sort of just aware of this like incredibly male-dominated, like sexist society. It's just the way life was back then. It still is today in much of rural, you know, Arab and Palestine areas. It's just how it was. They didn't push against it. It's just the, the nature of how life was. So she says, Should I not seek a husband for you so that you can, in a sense, start over? Naomi goes on. She says... In verse two, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So what she's queuing up here with like, he, is, he, is he not our relative? Some people get thrown off by this like, ooh, this is weird. Like relatives, <laughs> love story, what's going on? Um, so he is a relative of all of the men who died earlier in the story. So he's not Ruth's relative. He is a relative to the, the men who've, who've died. And there is this... Uh, there is this tradition or law in the Old Testament about marrying. If, if, um, if a woman is widowed, the idea is that some nearest of kin to the man who died ought to marry that woman to sort of redeem her and keep, uh, keep sons and keep children going in that line to redeem the lands. It's kind of confusing. We'll get into it a bit as we go. So she says, Boaz was going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor, and again, here we are urbanites were are like, winnowing what on what? Like, what, what is going on? So uh, what in the world's happening? So in barley and other grains, they didn't have the modern farm equipment like combines and other stuff that we have today. So what they had to do is they had to separate the actual grain, what they wanted, from the rest of the plant stock, from like the plant material. And they had to do that all by hand. And any advantage that they can find was you know, very valuable to them. So what they would do is they would wait <clears throat> for the wind to pick up in the late afternoon, and they would put a ton of barley down on this flat piece of like granite or bedrock. Put a ton of barley down, and they would beat the barley against the ground. Or they'd have oxen walk over it or like, take carriages over it. They'd find some sort of ingenious way to basically beat all of this plant matter. And then they'd take pitchforks and just pick the whole mess of it up into the air and toss it into the air. Just basically all afternoon long, they'd be tossing all this plant stuff up in the air. And the grains are dense and small, and they would fall back to the threshing floor, but all the plant material would get carried away maybe just five or ten feet at a time by the wind. So like, you know, the, the, when the time for harvest came, all hands on deck, right? They're all there, like beating this barley and tossing it up in the air all day. And then... Uh, they would be doing this until it was dark out now when it's dark you couldn't do any more work because they had no artificial light and you don't want to start a bunch of fires right around all your grain right uh so they uh <laughs> they it was like this you know this kind of this this party and then they would get all their piles of grain all the plant matter would be off to the side they get their piles of grain and they would actually have to sleep on their pile of grain because it was nighttime. You couldn't cart it off into the city, and so they would just lay down on their pile of grain to protect it in case any robbers wanted to come and like, make you know, the equivalent of thousands and thousands of dollars in today's money worth of grain. So this is what they're up to. They're beating this barley, tossing it up in the air, making a pile, sleeping on it. Uh, that was winnowing night. So there's the, now you feel like you're there, right? This is the People are like, why do you tell so much about the history? I want you to be able to, to, to picture it. So this had been a great and plentiful harvest. There was bread again in the house of bread. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And now they have grain and bread again. So they're celebrating, they're eating some of the grains, they're roasting it, they're having some wine, and it's just, it's a good night. And Naomi says to Ruth, "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies.' Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, Ruth replied, All that you say, I will do. Again, this is just crazy, you know. To an ancient hearer, this is a very normal story. But to us, we're like, what? Uncovering the feet? What's going on? So the idea is, hey, Ruth, go near the threshing floor, but kind of off in the distance. I don't know what Bethlehem looks like, so I don't know if there was a forest just right next to it or like a rock Formation or something, but the idea is go near, but kind of hide off in the distance so that nobody knows you're there. Kind of lurk, right? Be a creeper. Uh, watch the threshing and festivities until they all go to bed, and then notice which pile of grain Boaz claims and lies down on. So Ruth again kind of lurks, and we get this image of her kind of deep in the shadow of the forest, kind of watching this this festivity and keeping an eye on Boaz because if she ends up going up to the wrong pile of grain later, I mean. That is really bad news for you as a woman in Israel. You're like, all kinds of you know, wrong ideas can come into someone's head if you're waking up in the middle of the night on the threshing floor. All right, so this is what's happening. So Boaz and the crew lie down. Uh, the Bible says in verse 6, So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Just a side note, by the way, Boaz had had some wine, but the, his, his whole picture is of uh, a deeply respected man, so it's, it's saying that his heart was merry, but he's not like, I don't want you to get the picture of someone who's like off his rocker. He would probably had some wine, but he'd also been working hard and eating, so he's, he's okay. Just want you to know that <laughs> it's important to the story. Boaz is a very respected man, and the author is like, doesn't want you to you know, think that. Anyway. So some folks, uh, modern people who insist on seeing kind of scandalous relations in every story, like to point at this sort of uncovering of the feet, and they kind of say like, oh, you know, what's going on here? Is this a euphemism for something else? Um, And this, it's really nonsense. You'll hear this, actually. A lot of people like to say that. Uh, But the time was perfect, and Naomi jumped at it. She knew that this was the only place, really, where Ruth could get a hearing with Boaz alone. So in that society... You know, Ruth not having any men uh, in her family to, to sort of usher her along, which is how it is still in part of the Middle East. She couldn't just go and knock on Boaz's door and be like, hey, like, why don't you redeem me? Uh, it just wasn't an appropriate thing for her to do. So at the threshing floor, she could speak alone with him, but nothing could happen. I mean, there's a dozen other people around who could wake up at a moment's notice. You know, everyone there is sleeping on their pile of grain and kind of sleeping like that. You know like when you're at camp and everyone's playing pranks on each other and like you have to go to bed but you kind of don't want to because you don't want the pranks to be played. So they're all going to sleep but like afraid that someone might come and take their grain, right? So there's kind of a fitful half-sleep of someone sleeping out under the elements and they're all aware that somebody might come and try to rob everything that they did for the last year. So everyone's kind of lightly sleeping and this is the, the, the environment that Ruth walks into. Uh, so she gets this moment to chat with Boaz but there's nothing else going on. Boaz had a great reputation, and in that society, that's just not not how it was. So, this is what does happen. She tips to, tiptoes up to all these sleeping threshers, to the place where Boaz had lied down, and uh, all they had was starlight. We can, we'll see this later. Uh, all they had was starlight and maybe just a little bit of moonlight, so it was incredibly dark out. Um, we know this later because Boaz is like, who are you? He can't, he can't even see who it is. Um, she uncovers his feet, and now, because I'm a geek, I looked up when the barley harvest is, and the average temperature in Bethlehem at about midnight, because I wanted to know what temperature are we talking, okay, uh, <laughs> that's me. If any of you have never heard me preach before, that is like quintessential me. So uh, it's maybe about 54 degrees, give or take, okay, at the, at the time of harvest, we're talking about 54 degrees. So not cold, you know, to daytime Minnesotan, but if you're sleeping and you're all cozy under your garment, your covers, and all of a sudden your feet are exposed to 54 degree nighttime air, you know, you, you probably notice it. Um, so they're kind of cold, vulnerable. And the idea is that the, the, the feet would have no covering, in a sense, kind of like a widow. So in, in a sense, what's going on here is Ruth is doing to Boaz's feet what the death of her husband had done to her. She's completely, in a sense, uncovered and exposed to all the whims of nature in the world around her. She uncovers his feet. And uh, as weird as this is, the original audiences of Ruth wouldn't have been like, what? They'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's just normal. Um, So anyway, so he's asleep, but his feet are uncovered. And just like you and me, he he kind of stirs. He's uncomfortable. The Hebrew verbs there are weird, but the idea is that he kind of rolls around like, what is going on? Um, And he's going to fix his cover. So he kind of sits up or or gets up to, to, you know, recover his feet or, or fix what's going on. But then he sees that there's a woman lying at his feet. And at this point, you, you sense the fear, especially if you dive into the, the Hebrew. There's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of tension there. I think Boaz's nerves must have been heightened because this is really bad news if you're a very respected and wealthy Israelite man. I mean, re- reputation is everything. It's not like today where you can have a bad reputation and still be wealthy. You, really, you couldn't have both unless you were like a, a, a tyrant. And so his nerves must have been heightened because who is this woman that he can't even see her face? Uh, it could be a prostitute worse. It could be somebody else's wife. Uh, he has no idea. But men and women in that society, and still today, if you go to much of the Arab world, it's like this. Men and women are not seen together in that society, unless they're family or married. So the stakes were high. And he says, who are you? And often Boaz's speech is very, very marked with this kind of softness, like, who are you, my daughter? And here it's just like very gruff, like, who, who are you? You know? Um, so the reason he asks again is that he can't see. Ruth is dressed with his cloak on, he can't even tell who she is in the dark. But then, this is fascinating, I, because the week was kinda of busy, I was just doing my preparation in English, but all the commentators were like, the Hebrew is crazy here, so I was like, okay, I'll go check it out, I'll, I'll check it out in Hebrew. There is a huge change here, she answers Boaz, who she is, but she, it's almost like she's a different person. She speaks almost with um, kind of a, a graduated or a different voice than before because she drops all the formal stuff. The whole time she's been talking with all this formal language, my lord, a sir, your honor, you know, that kind of language to Boaz because she's this outsider who's gleaning in his fields. But when, she, when he says, who are you, she just looks back at him and says, I am Ruth. I am Ruth. No formality, no whatever, just I am Ruth. And again, this... this this killed me in the translation. If you read it just in English, it says, I am Ruth, your servant, but you're thinking, well, she's called herself your servant the whole time, so what's the big deal here? The translation really doesn't do it justice. Before, she's been talking about herself as like your lowly servant, your slave, your outside person the whole time, whereas this time she switches the word to, I don't even know what would it be in English, something like your maidservant, your, uh, your woman under the care of the home. The idea is if Boaz were to leave to another country, all of his servants would stay there and keep the work of the land going. But the very select few would come with him and make up his household somewhere else. And she moved to that class. She called herself that class of servant, um, basically a woman eligible for marriage who's under his care. And then she does something even more bold. She says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer, and I love how these words are in English, but it's just like, <laughs> what? What? Well, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So let me ask you this. This might be uh, more easy to decipher. So women, if, if a man is walking you down like a beautiful park, and then he grabs both of your hands, and he gets down on one knee, and takes out a little box, and pronounces your first, second, your middle name, and then your third name, what's he about to do? Right? He's about to propose. Those things are just as crazy, and 3,000 years from now, there might be like an American studies you know, person who's like reading into all this stuff. We just understand it because it's the culture that we know. Uh, and in this era, it was the same thing. After 3,000 years of change, we can kind of miss it. But to an ancient hearer, it's just as clear. She's saying, translation, Boaz, will you marry me? So she's proposing to him here, and we'll explain why. So to say spread out your wings or spread your wings and spread your garment is like one letter different in Hebrew. It sounds the same. It's kind of like a, a wordplay that she's doing. And it's not that she's a foreigner and she said the wrong word. Uh, she's doing this on purpose. So first, uh, we'll talk about the garment thing. Spreading your garment over another person in the Old Testament is one of the most common idioms for to get engaged or to, to be betrothed for marriage. And still today, if you go to rural Arab areas in the Middle East, uh, marriage is often declared in this way. They'll take both people and cover them both with the same garment. And this is a way to publicly declare that two people are about to be married. So she uncovers his feet and is basically saying, hey, when you cover your own feet, don't just cover them, cover me as well. Like she's proposing to him through this. Um, She says, you know, make your life with me, make your grave with me, and make your descendants with me. So why did she say spread out your wings? This is maybe the most theological proposal you've ever heard. This is, this is great. So in chapter 2, if you remember Joshua preaching about this last week, Boaz had told her you know, all that she had done, giving up her homeland, taking care of Naomi, making sure that she was going to die well, be buried well, and be taken care of in her old age. All of that you know, was told to Boaz, and he was just like, you know, you're awesome. Uh, and then he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she's saying to him, hey, remember when you prayed that Yahweh would spread his wings over me? She's saying, this is how Yahweh is going to answer that prayer, through you. You want God to stretch his wings over me, stretch yours, spread your garment over me, marry me and redeem me. And more importantly, redeem Naomi, the widow, with nothing to her name. And Ruth is touching on something important here. Though she's a recent convert, she understands that Yahweh often um, does his work through the willing hands of his followers. God's will for his kingdom come is often accomplished through those who are willing to carry out his, his will and his kingdom. And Ruth gets this. So just a little side note here. If you, if you want God to do something, I think Ruth has this. Pray earnestly for it, but also work at it yourself. So if you want God to care for the poor, you know, maybe do not just write about it on Facebook, you care for the poor. If you want God to heal the sick, pray for it earnestly, but also work to heal the sick. If you're worried about those who've never heard the gospel, make a way for them to hear the gospel. And if you want God to bring racial reconciliation, keep praying for it and keep bringing it in your own life and work. God often does his best work through the hands of those who follow him. Anyway, back to the threshing floor. So everyone in the ancient world would have understood clearly Ruth is proposing to Boaz here. None of this timid girl stuff, right? Like always waiting for the man. Uh, if anyone ever tells you that the Bible has it that the, women, the woman is always just like sitting back with her mouth shut, like just waiting, you know, for, hoping for the guy to like ask her out, I would just point you to Ruth three. You know, it's certain that in biblical times that's how it was, but Ruth three is kind of this freight train in the face of that norm. So Ruth made the big move. She put it all out there. She took a huge risk. And if she hadn't, we would have never had King David. Anyway, have you ever thought of this? What if Boaz said no? What if he had said no? Do you think she could have kept gleaning in his fields? Like if she goes and proposes in the middle of the night, and if he said no, wouldn't he be like, this woman's crazy. Like, get out of my fields. I'm not going to let you take off the shelves anymore. So it's just a huge risk that she was taking. I was thinking about this, that even in our quite egalitarian society, uh, this is still sometimes a shock uh, when, a, when a woman proposes to a man, although it happens, um, but imagine back then a completely male-dominated, paternalistic society. And it made me think, to, to my shame, of uh, the show Friends. Did any of you watch Friends growing up? Anyone? No? Uh, so I, it's such a well-known show that I'll, I, I figure at least someone who hasn't seen it might know who the characters are. But uh, there is a is the two characters, Monica and Chandler, anyone? No? Um, there is this scene where Monica proposes to Chandler. They've been dating for years. She proposes to him, so she gets down on one knee or two or whatever, and she just can't, she can't get through it. And so she, she ends up like kind of blurting out, like, there's a reason women don't do this, and then he gets down to sort of finish this proposal. And the, the reason I remember it is that even though this Matthew Perry, the one who plays Chandler, even though he's my favorite character by far, it's probably some of the worst, his proposal is probably some of the worst acting in the entire Friends' ten seasons. Like his, just go YouTube it later, it's awful. Anyway, uh, so I can't, I can't get the scene out of my mind. But what, what, what interested me about it is that even though the show was written by a very high-power woman and a feminist, she still couldn't, like, she, she just couldn't have Monica finish that proposal. It just didn't seem right, even given her own background. She she just had to let Chandler finish this proposal. And I was thinking, man, like even if she if she didn't even feel comfortable writing this, imagine how crazy it would have been for Ruth in this completely paternalistic society to propose to Boaz in the middle of the night. So anyway, just the funny friends aside there. Uh, But Ruth was an absolute powerhouse and and a force of nature. I don't have a daughter, at least yet, uh, but that's the kind of daughter I want. Maybe not in like the terrible twos, right? If you've got someone with that strong of a will, maybe you know, maybe I'll take Orpah for the, the two-year-old phase. But now uh, this is the kind of daughter I want, right? Someone who's willing to flout social convention, to care for the weak, to care for the least of these, uh, and to seek to be a part of God's answered prayers. So what does Boaz say? Uh, Ruth just referenced his earlier prayer, like you want Yahweh to stretch his wings over me, stretch yours over me, uh, marry me. And he said may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's basically saying, like, I get it. Um, Yes, may you be blessed by Yahweh through me. Um, He said, you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and uh, the first was that he cared for Naomi so well. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. I find it interesting here that Boaz almost is giving the picture that he's like, really? Like, you sure? You want me? Because like, he, before he was the rich, wealthy landowner and she was like the foreigner. But now she's got such a high esteem and people think of her so well that he's like, I'm surprised you didn't go for anyone else. Like, he, he almost seems unworthy. Uh, but then here's the dilemma that the author introduces in verse 12. Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So he's saying, there is somebody closer in the uh, relative chain. There's somebody who who sort of gets first pick as to whether or not he wants to redeem you. Um, he says, "Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning." So if you've wondered in t- until now, like if this Boaz guy likes her, why why didn't he do anything about it? And now we know. And it seems like maybe Naomi and Ruth weren't aware of this, that there is a kinsman redeemer who's closer in the chain of relatives, uh, and that's why Boaz didn't wanna step on his toes. Boaz is a man of character and knows he needs to act justly, and if he just went for it and tried to marry her, it would be a total disaster in ancient sort of rule keeping and society. Sort of like plagiarism today, how like, it can ruin your entire career overnight, that's what going out of order in this would have been an absolute disaster. Uh, so he says yes, but that he needed to check if the other redeemer, closer to El- Elimelech, would take on the role instead. And so Boaz gives her a promise at that moment. He basically says, "Tomorrow you get redeemed, or you get, you know, engaged on the way to redeemed, either by this other fellow who remains unnamed, uh, and of course, you know, it, well, if not him, by Boaz. And and all of us in the audience are like, we want it to be Boaz, right? He's like, he's got a strange name, but we like him by now, you know." Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, but the important point here to an ancient hearer is that Boaz is going to make sure that Ruth is taken care of, whether or not he's the one who gets to marry this amazing woman. And he says, You can lie down, you can rest till morning. And I find this really fascinating that the chapter opened with Naomi saying that she wanted to seek rest for Ruth. And this is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, that the book mentions her sleeping or resting. Of course, it's not the first time that she's slept. But the idea is that finally, instead of looking out for her own well-being, which was not in the ancient world the role of women, like, it should be the man keeping her, in her well-being, and then she can look after other things, but she shouldn't have had to be uh, looking after her own economic well-being on her own. And it says right here, she can, she can rest. Soon, she knows she won't be a foreigner, and she won't be a widow, but she will be an Israelite, a citizen, a landowner, a homeowner, and even have the economic means to, you know, make things happen. Uh, and then finally, you know, she'll have the chance to have sons, which is the ultimate measure of success in those herding farming cultures, still is today, in some of them and even more than that, she'll be able to redeem Naomi. We'll hear that story next week. She just doesn't know, is it going to be this other redeemer or is it going to be Boaz? So he tells her to stay there for the night. And again, this is, she's sleeping like at the foot of this grain pile, not you know, any closer to Boaz than that. Um, he tells her to stay there for safety. It's completely unsafe for women to be out alone at night in the ancient world. So they're both there, um, and Ruth gets up while it's still dark enough where you can't really tell who's who, and she heads out. But Boaz is this great man, and he thinks, I don't want to send you off with em- empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So he loads her up with a bunch of grain. Basically, it says six measures. It doesn't even tell us what kind of measure, but the idea is it's about as much as she could probably carry comfortably back home. So maybe 40 or 50 pounds, kind of. who knows. Um, so he loads her up with a ton of grain, to bring back to Naomi uh, as a kind of a sign to let her know that she isn't going to be left out of this. Naomi is not going to remain uncared for. When Naomi first entered Bethlehem, she cried and said, don't call me Naomi for pleasant, call me Mara for bitter or bitterness. She says, I went away full and Yahweh brought me back Rekam, which means empty-handed, Joshua pointed this out last week, that Ruth is standing right next to her while she says this. God brought me me out full, or he took me out full, and then he brought me back, re empty-handed. And then here, Boaz is sending a ton of grain to her, promising to find a redeemer, whether somebody else or him. Um, And he says, send this back to her because I don't want her to feel re empty-handed. So there, Ruth brings the grain, and it's like, your prayers are answered, right? There's a sense of, your prayers are answered, Naomi. This barley is a symbol that you'll be taken care of, of, and you'll uh, you'll not die alone. You won't die uncared for. And we actually forget this, that it's actually Naomi who's getting redeemed just as much as Ruth. We tend to focus on the love story, but in terms of the legalities and the ancestral land, Ruth is getting more of the redemption here by having her daughter marry into this respected and ancient line again. So Naomi's prayers, Ruth's prayers, Boaz's prayers, they're all kind of the same, and they're all going to be answered and answered soon. But how are those prayers going to be answered? They're all kind of praying for this, but it's only through their bold steps that God came through and answered their prayers. If Ruth had stayed back in Moab, do you think that God would have answered her prayers? If she didn't follow after Yahweh or take the risk of caring after this old uh, widow... She might have married again in Moab, but she wouldn't have married like this, and she certainly wouldn't have been the great-grandmother of the one who would come to redeem all of the Israelite kingdom, King David. Ruth's bold actions were what brought God's will. Bold actions taken in faith and according to God's will are what end up bringing his kingdom on his creation. And the reason they're bold is that they're scary, right? Like, non, if, if you don't have to take a bold action, it's because it's like, it's just it's an easy action that you're taking. But bold action is scary because we can't always see the end. We can't see if our investment will pay off or if there's a good, you know, cost benefit to what we're about to do here. Um, but as followers of God, we're called to be like Ruth, to be willing to leave behind the sure and safe path in order to serve the weak, follow God, and even escape an idolater's past like it was the case of Ruth. We're called to go all in, and you're called—you're all called—to be redeemed by God and to redeem others. Checking the time here to see how much time we have. Um, let me skip this next part. So you can—you can redeem your story just like Ruth redeemed her story. You can pray big and seek the good of another instead of yourself. A lot of people miss this: that when Naomi sends Ruth out, she's just trying to find Ruth a husband but Ruth is trying to redeem Naomi out of all this. It would have been much easier just to get married, but she's seeking a redeemer, which is a lot more of a risk for her, but it has all the benefit for Naomi. So Ruth redeems Naomi. Boaz redeems both of them. They end up having kids and eventually great-grandkids, who is, you know, who is David. And what's, what's fascinating is another, I don't know, 20 generations or so after David is Jesus of Nazareth, who ends up redeeming the entire world. And all of them are these direct descendants of Ruth. A Moabite, a widow, a gleaner, and a beggar, a daughter of an incestuous people, a hated people, and then Boaz, son of Rahab, who was a prostitute. God has made redemption his business, and he brings redemption out of some of the strangest places, right? That Jesus of Nazareth has this. In his bloodline, but God doesn't. That's not something to to kind of shy away from. This is something He rejoices in, in taking these broken narratives and turning them around for redemption. God makes it His business to redeem His children, no matter their story. You know, whether abuse, brokenness, divorce, feeling unloved or unworthy, feeling unsuccessful. Man, I know we've all felt that, right? Feeling unneeded, or wondering why you're even here. God is waiting to redeem you, waiting to accomplish his will in you. But how does God accomplish his will? He does it through the willing hands of those who serve him, who step up boldly in faith to bring about God's will. So if you're deliberating, making some big move, or stepping out in a huge way in faith, I would just say go for it. You know, pray on it, make sure it's wise, make sure it's in accordance with Scripture. Some people will say, like, God's calling me to do this thing, and it's always, like, a bad idea, and everyone in their life is like, don't do it. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying a measured risk, even if you can't see the end, if you're deliberating whether or not to go for something, to care for somebody else rather than yourself, to care for the weak, to do something that God would have you do to bring about his kingdom, I say go for it. At the end of your life, you will look back, and you certainly will never reject or you, you certainly won't um, be sad about having been uh, too risky or too bold in bringing about God's kingdom on earth. But what you might, um, what you might be sad about on your deathbed is looking back and realizing you, you've been too timid or you hadn't taken any risks in the name of bringing God's kingdom on earth. Um, we're over time, so we won't have our last song. <laughs> All right, Casey. All right, let me pray to close us. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the story of Ruth. Um, and we pray that you might make us um, more like her, that we would have her bold faith, that we would step out in this boldness, not even seeing the end, um, but willing to care for the least of these, to care for those who have no other help in this world, um, even if it means danger or less security for us, Lord. We pray that we might have just a, a fraction of this heart. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of Capital City Church in the West Seventh community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcityst.paul.com.